friends, my name is Isaac Blois. Uh, I'm a member at Trinity, and uh, I want to share some reflections uh, with you on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. So let me pray for our text here. Father, thank you so much for the chance we have to learn from Scripture. We pray that you would illuminate our uh, minds and our hearts as we look at this text together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In that notorious love poetry offered us in Scripture, in the Song of Solomon, we come across the following comment about whether love can be bought. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Song of Songs 8-7. Trying to offer money, even a whole lot of it, in order to buy love is recognized as laughable and ridiculous. We find elsewhere in the Psalms that the ransom for a life is costly. Money can be a powerful tool in our world, but there are some things that money can't buy. It can't buy you love, and it can't buy you life. This is all the more apparent in the current crisis, in, w- in which we are battling against a virus that's not a respecter of persons. The rich are just as susceptible to it as the poor when exposed to its poisonous influx. Being forced to face up to this harsh reality that no amount of money we possess can buy our safety, we are reminded of the universal condition of humanity before God, namely, one of frail futility. We're helpless, having acquired a debt so large and a guilt so great that no amount of money or wealth could be used to dig our way out. It would require something other than money, something infinitely more precious, to buy us out of this. It's something God alone could do. In describing this situation of futility out of which God alone can redeem us, Peter recalls language and themes from the church's scriptural heritage. Israel also found themselves in a similarly futile, helpless situation when they had become enslaved to the world power of Egypt, in which the Pharaoh ruthlessly set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and so made their lives bitter with hard service. In the midst of such bitterness and misery, we are told that the people cried out to God for help, to be rescued from out of their slavery. In that ancient story of woe, God does indeed step in and act. He hears their pleas for help. He remembers his covenant with them. He sees what's going on with his people. And finally, and I love this part at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, God knows He's aware of all the bitterness and pain, of all the heartache and struggle. He's with them through it all, and he's working to bring it to an end. When calling on Moses to be the deliverer for his people, the Lord reiterates that he knows their suffering. So he has come to deliver them out of the grip of the Egyptians in order to bring them up out of that land of misery into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is precisely what God does. This deliverance that God works for his people 
ransoming them out from a situation filled with bitterness, death, and misery, so that he can bring them into a situation of joy, life, and glory, becomes in Scripture the model on which much of God's later saving activity is based. It becomes part of God's identity that he is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt, ransoming them out of misery and bringing them into freedom. One spot where we see this explicitly with the language of ransom is in Isaiah's prophetic hope for the future of God's people. Isaiah envisions a time when God's people are once again trapped in a state of misery, exiled from the good land of promise that God had given them, and under the oppressive thumb of the world power of Babylon. Isaiah encourages the beleaguered exiles with God's comforting words, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, for I am your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes, and I love you, I give Egypt as your ransom. I give peoples in exchange for your life. That's from Isaiah 43. The idea that God is working out a redemption for his people that involves making an exchange on behalf of their life, giving a ransom for them which is costly and precious because they themselves are precious before him, is one that both picks up the ideas from the Exodus in the past and points forward to God's redemption of believers through Christ, which Peter speaks about in our passage today. Just as God's paradigmatic deliverance of his people in the Exodus involved making use of the blood of the Passover lamb, wiping that blood upon their doorposts so that the angel of death might pass them by, so too does our redemption from out of the misery of a futile, wasteful, purposeless existence require again the blood of a spotless lamb, though this time it's the perfect blood of Christ, whose blood is so precious that once spilt, no further sacrifice or death is needed. Peter reminds us that a precious people can only be redeemed by a precious blood. It requires Christ's death on our behalf in order to lift us out of the futile ways of life that have become so integrated into our behavior. Futility is not just about wasteful and immoral behavior. It's also about arrogant and rebellious behavior. It involves dragging God's name into futility, which is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. When God created us, he made us with a purpose. But when we turn away from him, we walk away from that calling and become purposeless, stopping up and making fruitless God's creative work in the world. In order to restore and redeem his creatures who have essentially emptied themselves out of their original meaning, becoming hollow on the inside, God sends his Son. By means of his perfect life, Christ's fullness fills up our emptiness, thereby refashioning us into God's own people once again. Christ is able to do this work of redemptive refilling, of making meaningful again that which had become meaningless, not only through his innocent death on our behalf, but also through his powerful resurrection. Jesus, in his fullness, voluntarily empties himself, but then God does not leave Christ empty on the cross. As we celebrated yesterday in Easter, he raises him to life and fills him up again with even greater glory than he had before. Peter ends our passage by telling us that our faith is not only in Jesus who died for us, 
but is ultimately in the God who raised him from the dead. This two-part movement, death then resurrection, teaches us that our experience of God's redemptive salvation involves not just giving up the emptiness of the past, but also taking up the fullness of the future. As the great African spiritual expresses this, it is only the precious blood of Jesus that first washes away our sin, yet doesn't stop there, but goes on to make us whole again. What can do this impossible task of overturning the entrenched habits of feudal sin, of creating us anew into a holy people for God's own possession? It is nothing but the blood of Jesus.